メイディットインジャパンポッドキャスト、ホストのエリオットコンティでございます。もう8月に突入してて、お盆休み前の最後の追い込みですね。皆さんはどう感じてるかわかりませんが、僕は頭を整理する時間が必要だと思うので、非常にタイミングのいい連休になってます。日本国内及び世界の情勢は案の定変わっていないので、余計な報告をする気はあんまりないですねむしろ早速に本題に入りたいと思ってます昨年はインタビュー収録のために北海道まで行ってきたんですが今回はその逆の方向でですね九州にプチ旅をしてきましたそこで2人とインタビューができたので今回はその1人目をご紹介しますなお皆さんはすぐにコロナとの関係で反応するかもしれませんが今回は最善の注意を払って移動する時間をずらし3密を避けながらやってきたので無事に行ってまいりました実は新幹線は行きも帰りもほぼ貸し切りの状態でしたね不思議な光景でしたでは福岡で1軒目本日のゲストなんですけれども九州大学の教授エドワード・ビッカーズ博士ですイギリス人のビッカーズ先生は僕と同じく8年間日本に滞在していますが面白いことに研究対象は日本というよりもアジアの方にフォーカスをしたものですもともと歴史学者だったようですが現在ビッカーズ先生は9代でですねあの、比較教育学を教えておられ、中国及び中国語圏、えつまり香港や台湾における教育制度とえ社会科の過程、またメディア、言説ですね、えを専門としています。比較教育学っていう表現には、まあ、皆さんはあんまり馴染みはないかもしれませんが、まあ、端的に言えばビッカーズ先生の研究は現在の中国政府や中国人の思想を理解するために重要な板口を示してくれるわけです本日のエピソードでは香港をめぐる対立米国をはじめとする西洋諸国との摩擦日中関係アジアにおける地政学とその展望などまさに今時の時事問題の核心をついてます中国についてディスカッションをした後で後半ではちょっと観点を変えてですね日本の教育制度のメリットデメリットについて話し合ってます外国人としての僕は自分の子供をインターナショナルスクールに通わさないビッカーズ先生の考え方にすごく関心があったので非常に興味深く伺いましたインタビュー自体は福岡市の中心部にあるビッカーズ系でやらせていただきました大変洗練されていて景色の素晴らしいお家だったのでもう入れていただいたことに大変感謝していますエピソードの使用言語は英語ですのでイギリス英語あんまりあの聞き慣れてない方々は覚悟をする必要はあると思います
で福岡冒険の2件目のインタビューはですね、えー、お盆中にアップしようと考えているので少しお時間をくださいでまた面白いと思って暮らした皆さんは、えー、ライクをして、えー、友達と共有して、えー、拡散してくださいビッカーズ先生のメッセージは広いオーディエンスに届いてしかるべきですでは次回まで Welcome back to the Made It in Japan podcast. Host Elliot here for the 35th episode. We're into August, which means the long awaited summer holiday is just around the corner in Japan. But I think you imagine that this year will be a bit more subdued than normal. Given that since the last episode, COVID 19 seems to be continuing on the same trajectory, I don't see the need for a long preamble and will rather get right into today's episode. Listeners to the podcast will recall that last year I made the trip to Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, for a podcast interview. And this time,、uh, I headed in the opposite direction, heading southwest to the island of Kyushu for two podcast interviews in the city of Fukuoka. Fukuoka is the largest city on Kyushu,、uh, but the island is unique as it is the western extreme of Japan,、uh, meaning that geographically it is. Closest to the Asian mainland. It is famous for its cuisine, nature, hot springs.、Uh, it is home to Nagasaki, so it is quite historically significant as well. This was my second time visiting Kyushu, and the trip was great for clearing my head and exploring southwest Japan. Moving on to the interview, my guest today is Dr. Edward Vickers. Professor of Comparative Education and Director of Taiwan Studies Project at Kyushu University. Originally from the UK, Dr. Vickers is a trained historian whose research focuses mainly on education,、uh, media, and socialization in China and East Asia. I don't think there could be better timing for this episode, to be honest,、uh, as we delve into some of the more pressing issues concerning China and East Asian geopolitics. From the usurpation of power in Hong Kong to other political aggressions against the United States and Europe, we also discuss the portrayal of China in the United States and how that feeds rhetoric within China, all of which are, needless to say, matters of increasing concern. Uh, we change gears a bit in the back half of the interview to discuss education in Japan,、uh, more specifically, the accuracy of Western interpretations of the Japanese education system and its efficacy. This portion of the, of the interview was of considerable personal interest. As an eight year foreign resident who just married a Japanese last year, I am a bit hesitant at the prospect of bringing up children within this system. So, learning about Dr. Vickers' experiences was more than insightful.、Uh, I'm very grateful to Dr. Vickers for sharing his time and expertise. He invited me up to his home,、uh, which had beautiful views of downtown Fukuoka, which really made the trip worthwhile.、Uh, anyone interested in Dr. Vickers' work can find out more、uh, at the homepage I have、uh, listed in the description below. I hope you find the interview informative. It gets a bit specific at times, but I think the timing for this discussion is, is just right given the current state of, of the world right now. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe.
And if you've already subscribed, please tell a friend. Until next time, hang in there. Okay, Dr. Vickers, great to meet you. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. How have you fared through the various crises which have mired Japan and uh, in the world in the first half of 2020? Uh, well, um, fairly well, I, mm. I, I'd have to say. I mean, mm. you know, I'm fortunate, of course, to uh, first of all, uh, have a job that's not immediately threatened by these crises sure. as, a, as a university professor. Right. Uh, and secondly, I have to say, I feel fortunate to be in Japan <laughs> rather than right. in some yeah. other places where Absolutely. you know the, this this uh, virus crisis is um, you know hit harder. Yeah. Including Britain, of course. Yeah, and United States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't say I entirely agree with the comments made by um, certain senior Japanese politicians about mm. the reasons for this. Um, right, right. You know, um, uh, Japan's uh, mindo, uh, which <laughs> I think translates as what is it? Uh, the level of the people. Right. Um, but I think there are, I mean, characteristics of mm. Japanese society related to the education system that mm. help account for um, the. Uh, the, the fact that Japan has got off relatively lightly. So far, so virus. good, right? Yeah, yeah so yeah. far, so far. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Cases seem to be increasing. Um, well, certainly in Tokyo, accelerating yes. in, in and around Tokyo. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we'll see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, you're right. Uh, so far, um, compared to other, you know, nations of a hundred, hundred plus million people, or well, not even a hundred plus million people, even just you know. 30 40 million people japan has has done remarkably well mm. um mm. how have you fared how you're here in fukuoka which is on kyushu mm. right uh kyushu is in the news lately for having just sort of historical torrential downpours well at yes. the beginning of at the beginning of uh, this month yeah were you affected by that at all well here? we weren't affected so much here in the city of fukuoka yeah uh, it was mainly in the sort of center and south of kyushu that mm. those floods hit hardest but yeah. um, my wife's family yeah my wife is from fukuoka prefecture and uh, mm. originally from the south of fukuoka prefecture yeah. an area called yame Okay. Famous in Japan for tea. Oh, really? Mm. And sake. Um, nice. yeah. And rice. Uh, so, a very rural area. Yeah. Uh, and they are prone to quite serious flooding down there, but fortunately, mm. um, they seem to have escaped the worst of it this time. But, uh, this is maybe the second year in a row that they've had uh, considerable damages due to, to flooding mm. in, in this area, in Kyushu. Well, I mean, as in many other parts of the world, this seems yeah. to be, you know, the abnormal weather is becoming normal. Um, right, sure. It's, it seems like the, the government, various legislative bodies are going to have their work cut out for them and beefing up the infrastructure then if this becomes the, the norm, mm. right? Mm. You certainly can't go through this every year. Well, and, and I yeah. would hope it would also be a wake-up call for the government here Mm. with regard to um, its energy policies and its <laughs> policies on climate change. That's true as well, yeah. Uh, my father-in-law yeah. um, worked all his career for Kyushu Electric, the local yeah. electricity sure. monopoly, which, sure. of course, um, 
uh, until around 10 years ago was heavily reliant on nuclear power. Right. Um, uh, but over the last 10 years, they've been closing down nuclear power stations or mothballing them and right. building new right. coal-fired power Coal, stations. right? Yeah. Um, so I think that when we in Japan sort of experience these uh, exceptional, except that they're no longer exceptional, right, right. Weather, weather events, yeah. uh, we need to reflect mm. on that sort of uh, uh, you know, policy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, before we get ahead of ourselves too much, let's start with just a very uh, a simple introduction. Yeah, um, where, where you're from. Uh, what brought you here to Japan originally, and uh, yeah, and what you do? Uh, so yes, well, I'm originally from Britain, as sure. some of you can probably hear. Mm. Uh, I but I uh, have spent most of my adult life in in Asia. Um, mm. uh, first of all, in Hong Kong and 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 mainland China, mm. uh, and then for the last eight or nine years here in Japan. Yeah. What is it that brought you here to Japan then? Uh, ah, well, um, several things. Yeah. Uh, I would say primarily uh, my wife and the family connection okay. to Fukuoka in particular. Okay. But also, so I mean, and, uh, before I came here, I was working for the University of London. Mm. Um, but I've always researched Asia. Right. Uh, right. Well, originally I was a school teacher in Hong Kong, but then I, I made the transition into academic research and as an academic in the University of London, yeah. still focusing on Asia. I was doing a lot of very long haul trips to yeah. <laughs> the Far East from London. Yeah. Uh, and um, once my wife and I got married uh, and um, uh, we had our first son, um, we thought we wanted to bring our children up bilingually. Mm. Uh, and it's basically impossible to do that uh, in Japanese, it's, unless yeah. you live in Japan, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the way the world is hmm. these days, everybody learns English, or English is valued globally. Right. Um, right. But if you uh, want your children to learn another language and you bring them up in an English speaking society, it's very difficult to. Hmm. Um, to sort of force them to speak that other language. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, so we thought, you know, from the point of view of our children's education, we wanted to be in Japan. But mm. also for me, mm. uh, Fukuoka in particular, yeah. the closest city in Japan to the rest of Asia with mm, excellent okay. sort yeah. of, uh, connections to China, Taiwan, Got Hong the Kong. airport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so yeah, that brought you to, uh, to Japan then. You said you were in, in Sendai? Yeah. Originally, yeah, and now you're here, yeah, in, in Fukuoka, yeah, and yeah. you're working at Kyushu University. Kyushu University, yeah. 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 And what are you a, a professor of? My title is professor of comparative education. Comparative uh, education, okay. Which is a very broad field. It basically means studying education in countries or societies other than one, other than the one in which you're currently sort located. Of, sort yeah, of based. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, but I'm by training I'm a historian, mm. uh, and so my uh, and originally my um, my specialism was uh, British imperial history. Mm. Uh, so as an undergraduate, I specialised in the the history of uh, British India. Okay, uh, wow. Sort of just prior to independence. Yeah. Um, so I had an interest in Asia right. from 
know, from a very young age. Yeah. Um, but uh, my research now mm. looks at the sort of contemporary history and politics of education in East Asia, mm. particularly Chinese East Asia, so mainland China, Hong Kong, and uh, Taiwan. What caused you to jump from South Asia to, to East Asia then? I, I can see the connection within the, the British uh, Empire, right, to move from India it's into maybe Hong Kong. It's precisely the British Kong. Empire that yeah. brought me to East Asia. Yeah, um, yeah. My father was uh, uh, a military officer in the Hong Kong garrison. Uh, oh, really? In the early 1990s, my uncle was in the Hong Kong government. Uh, wow. So when I graduated from university, I, courtesy of the British government, got a free flight to <laughs> Hong Kong to join my family. Mm. I didn't have a clear idea at that point of what I actually wanted to do, but I did want yeah. to go to Hong Kong and sure, uh, sort yeah. of take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, having spent a year there, I decided to stay. Well, I, I managed to find a job as a school teacher. Mm. Uh, and, and it was a, it was a sort of gradual process. The longer I spent there, the less inclined I was to to leave or to go back to Britain. Hmm. That's funny. It seems to be happening with me in Japan. <laughs> uh, sorry, con continue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So, um, so I, I worked as a school teacher right up until the handover in 1997. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, not particularly because of the handover, but it, it just so happened that at that point in 1997, I left my job as a teacher and moved to uh, full-time postgraduate studies at the University of Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, and what I was studying as a doctoral student there was um, the history of history education in Hong Kong. So, mm, um, education. Yeah, yeah. The and the relationship between the history curriculum and the sort of evolving sense of identity in Hong mm. Kong society, mm. which in the 1980s and 1990s was changing uh, from you know what had been a sort of strong sense of Chinese identity amongst most people in Hong Kong right. towards a much stronger sense of local identity, right. which as we've seen has continued to strengthen following the handover. So, sure, yeah. sure. Um, I imagine that's also, uh, an you know, given given your your area of expertise, you're going to have a wealth of of new material to to research and sink your. T your well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's given the current. I have very, of course, conflicted feelings about what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment mm. because, as a researcher, you know, I, yes, it's fascinating. I could I could spend the rest of my career writing about this stuff. Right. Uh, but. Uh, You're not happy at, to do so. I'm not happy to do so yeah, at all. I yeah. mean, I am a Hong Kong permanent resident. I still yeah. have many friends in Hong Kong. Yeah. I identify with Hong Kong to some extent. Right. Uh, so as a Hong Konger, in right, a sense, right. I, I, uh, you know, I don't take any pleasure from, from mm. this whatsoever. Um, yeah, yeah, I imagine. Jumping forward, then we can really we can really get into some of the the meat of the conversation or what I'd like to discuss with you today. Uh, this is a good segue. But what can we learn about uh, where we currently stand from studying the history of China and Chinese education and socialization? Well, one thing we have to bear in mind is the uh, the significance of memories of Western imperialism. Mm. in um, uh, shaping the way that uh, 
Chinese leadership, but also many ordinary Chinese people see their relationship with the West, rest of the world. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I mentioned my, um, my own sort of personal history of coming to Hong Kong, sure, the, sure. the end of British rule there, yeah. um, uh, and, uh, uh, and living in Hong Kong through the end of British rule, through the handover to, to mm. China. Uh, I mean, the, the rhetoric coming from Beijing during the 1990s of the 100 years of humiliation, right. uh, the century of humiliation, the end of this signified by the, uh, well, both by the communist revolution in 1949, right. but also sort of capped by the um, return of Hong Kong mm. to the motherland. Mm. I mean, this, this, this is not just propaganda, although of course, it, it is propaganda. It is but, propaganda, but, but, but there's it, more but to it's, it than that. Yeah. But it's also propaganda that is uh, sort of viscerally uh, mm, um, mm. Uh, believed in by uh, many Chinese, certainly okay. in mainland China. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so it's important for us not to underestimate uh, mm. the significance of that narrative or those memories in shaping the way that China sees its relationship with the West, rest of the world. Right. And that's why, I mean, I, I, of course, studying history education, studying the relationship between education and identity mm. uh, here in East Asia, I'm particularly interested in the phenomenon of nationalism mm. and how that relates to education. And nationalism, as we all know, can be a highly dangerous sure. uh, phenomenon. Uh, and uh, there's very good reason for um, uh, for many of us to be concerned about mm. Chinese nationalism mm. and uh, the threat that this poses to other countries. Right. But I think at the same time, we need to be very careful about how that concern shapes the way that we deal with China. Mm. Uh, because um, the sort of rhetoric that we see, particularly now in America, mm. uh, coming from leading politicians, right. uh, demonizing China for electoral advantage. I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's very hard to avoid that happening right. in a, a, a sort of electoral democracy. But Did, um, didn't something happen with Great Britain just this past week? And like they they outlawed Huawei? Or something like that. Yes. Refers, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is which is a political statement. It it, it is. I, I have mixed feelings about that mm. um, because, as I said, I think it's it's uh, it's important mm. for us to be very cautious mm. about uh, dealings with China, uh, and I. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on telecoms <laughs> technology, right, right, sure. but I can see in theory that there is a there is a cause for Potential concern threat, there. Yeah. I was very surprised, uh, uh, and I felt, I, re, to be honest, it was very naive of the British government several years ago to involve a state-owned Chinese corporation in mm. the construction of a nuclear power station in Britain. Right, right. Uh, I mean, that would never happen in Japan right. in a million years. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, why was the British government, it would never happen in America, right? Sure. Why was the British government prepared to do that? Mm. Um, I felt that was somewhat naive. Mm. But at the same time, I think that um, Western politicians, Western observers 
by demonizing China, mm. um, uh, risk intensifying nationalism and intensifying Chinese hostility and legitimating the mm. narrative that the, uh, the, the the Communist Party in China uh, is is um, promoting right. amongst its own people. Right. That you know, look, the outside world is hostile. Right. The West is trying to keep us down. This is a continuation of you know, 150, 200 years of Western imperialism. Right. You know, this is how the West is. Right. Uh, um, and, and so I think there's, there's a balance to be struck. Mm. Um, and, a, and a lot of this is to do with language. We should not um, demonize China. Mm. And, and that also means remembering that China is not monolithic. Well, no country sure. is. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Even a country that presents itself as you know, authoritarian, Right. One party state. Right. That's, even the Communist Party itself actually is not monolithic. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, one one point three billion people, or yeah, I, I believe yeah. that's right. Around one point yeah. three. It's it's or hard more. to imagine that they're all you know all towing the from party the same line, right? Hymn sheet. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You have experience living there, and you're obviously an expert on this subject. This Western narrative of of China and the Communist Party being this uh, sort of sort of holding court throughout the country and and you know creating this Chinese nationalist identity how how accurate is that and if that is their intent how effective have they been in creating this sort of unionizing narrative I think mm. in some ways uh, they have been quite effective mm. uh, at creating a uh, a fairly unifying or uniform mm. consciousness of Chinese identity, at least amongst urban educated Chinese in the sort of core areas of right. China, right. amongst Han Chinese living in cities, basically. Right. Um, but China is also, um, in, in fundamental ways, a very divided society. Yeah, over 50 ethnicities, right? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, 53, I think. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. According to the official definition. Right. Uh, and, of course, not all of those are um, happily buying into sure. this unifying narrative right. from it. Right, um, And But also, uh, in some ways, an even more fundamental cleavage in Chinese society is between... Um, uh, urban and rural right, right. Uh, Chinese. Get into that a little bit, because that's something that's difficult for, I think, Westerners to conceptualize. Right, so here in Japan, yeah. we have something called the Koseki system, right. where you know, everybody is, uh, you're registered with your local city hall, uh, and um, you know, so that you, that's sort of your native place. Yeah. Uh, and this is a very old system Absolutely. in Japan as in China. Yeah. Superficially, the Chinese system looks the same, mm. except that whereas in Japan, when you move or, or you know, if you want to, you can actually change your registration. Sure, sure. Um, and this happens when you marry as well. And it happens when you marry, yes. Yeah. In China, you can't. Mm. Um, uh, so basically, your... Um, your personal sort of native place is determined by your mother's sure. uh, registration. Right. 
Right. Uh, and uh, there are circumstances in which you can change your registration, you know, particularly if you're if you go to university, if you become highly qualified, if, right. you, get, if you get a great job, right. uh, you know. But um, for most ordinary people, it's mm. very very difficult to mm. change your registration. For example, from rural to urban, and, and and that's very significant in China mm. because your access to public services is determined by your registration. Be, okay, so you're entitled to. Um, free education, right. nine years of compulsory education for your children, right, right. Um, you're entitled to you know, health care, uh, public health care, um, you're entitled to benefits such as pensions and, and, um, uh, and so forth in the location of your registration. Mm. Um, but the benefits that are available to people who are registered in rural areas are very different and generally much inferior sure. to those that are available to people who are registered in urban areas. Sure. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, when we think of people's entitlements to public services, yeah. what, that what people are entitled to as citizens, we mm. expect that to be uniform, sure. right? So if, you're, if, if, if certain entitlements are available to people by virtue of their citizenship, then everyone who's a citizen has the same entitlement, right. basically. Right. Now, in most countries, that's taken for granted. Mm. In China, that's not the case. Mm. Uh, and so <laughs> there's an irony here, because on the one hand, you have uh, the Communist Party promoting uh, you know, a highly um, totalizing, homogenizing, right, right, right. monolithic vision of Chinese identity. We are all Chinese together. Right. You know, we all share basically one single identity as Chinese. But mm. actually, in practice, citizenship is fragmented and hierarchical, mm. uh, you know, highly differentiated. Mm. Um, to, to say that someone is a Chinese citizen doesn't tell you doesn't really much, if okay. anything, about what okay. they're entitled to as a Chinese Social citizen. Social status, different yeah. things like that, yeah? Mm. How does the, the com what is the Communist Party's stance? on that right now do they do they speak on that is there effort well to the, the, that? No, well there, yeah i mean no. the, the they recognize i mean as i said the, the communist party is not monolithic but the communist party uh, um, many senior communist party officials are also highly intelligent people and right. they realize that 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 uh, this does pose problems for mm. china mm. um uh, you know that it's a highly inequitable system and that many people resent it Right. Uh, and so at many points, actually, in the last 20 or more years, the, the party has promised to reform this system right. and said that they have indeed reformed it. Uh, mm. And so within the last 10 years, formally, um, they've in introduced certain reforms to that system. Uh, they've introduced a, a system of residence permits. They've um, mm. uh, and they've. Um, uh, encouraged various localities to set up um, sort of points-based systems mm. uh, to uh, determine uh, how someone can qualify to transfer their residency status. Mm. So it's a bit like if you want to um, emigrate to a country like New Zealand or right, Australia, right. you know, and, and, and you've got a PhD in astrophysics, they'll, they'll let you straight in and roll out the red carpet. 
Whereas if you're, um, a, you know, a construction worker who left school at 14, you're probably going to find it more difficult to right. get your um, visa stamped. Mm. Uh, well, basically, uh, many cities in China are, are running um, that kind of scheme now. Okay. Internally. I see. I see. Yeah. So Chinese citizens have to sort of apply to transfer their residency to Shanghai, for example. Right. As if they were applying to emigrate to New Zealand. Right. Wow. Wow. D is there a, a, a mass exodus? Once these systems get put in place, is there a, a, an exodus from rural areas? Well, if anything, the opposite. To... Because in practice, mm. in practice, those systems actually... Uh, well, particularly if you want to em if you want to move to one of the biggest, richest cities in China, they make it more difficult. Yeah, rather than that, less. that makes sense. Yeah. So, so the the um, so that the the reforms, uh, as they're presented by by the government in Beijing, say, well, this is a fairer system. This is you know meritocratic and, and <laughs> transparent, and mm. you know, and implying that this will make it easier for people to transfer their residency. But actually, in practice, it it makes it more difficult. The barriers to entry are still. Yeah. Yeah, extant. Yeah. Okay. But also everything that I said uh, a few moments ago about the dangers of demonizing China mm. uh, for the West mm. applies, um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, even more to the mm. case of Japan. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the Dig into the, that a the, bit. the sort of public discourse on China here in Japan is extremely negative. It is. Uh, and um, I mean, what's interesting actually is that 20, 30 years ago, public perceptions of China here in Japan were actually relatively positive. Mm. Uh, from the 1970s, really, through until the 1990s, relations between China and Japan were relatively good. But also, Japanese people, I think, generally felt that Japan was far more prosperous, sure. economically far stronger than China. Right. Uh, Japan far more developed, far more advanced, yeah. advanced. Right, right. Uh, and I think people thought about it in those terms. Right. And the, the general sense was of Japan as a kind of big brother mm. to Asian little brothers. Right, right. they modernized. They yeah. were the first Asian country to modernize. So right. here are we in Japan. Setting the example. High tech. Yeah. Uh, you know, Japan is number one. Right. Um, uh, and there are they in China, <laughs> these these um, these funny people riding around on their bicycles in blue mouse suits, um, right. uh, and uh, learning from us, right. and receiving lots of uh, development aid from Japan, mm. and receiving lots of investment from Japan, sure. um, and but not posing any kind of threat to Japan because mm. China is still very poor. Mm. But what's changed since the 1990s, of course, is that China has become a lot richer, sure. while Japan has kind of flatlined S slipped into in, the in, yeah. in, in, in economic terms. Right. Um, and China has, especially within the last decade or so, become a lot more assertive. Mm. Um, and China does threaten Japan's control over the Senkaku Islands, Senkaku, for, exa yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, uh, Ten years ago, it was just the Senkaku Islands. China is, of, of course, asserting itself all, all over right. uh, today. Right. And so, you know, as I, as I said, there are reasons for being uh, concerned mm. about China and about Chinese behavior. But Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how should Japan respond? Mm. Uh, the way in which Japan 
has responded in the last 10 years especially has been to swing significantly in a nationalist direction itself. Mm. Uh, so when Abe took power in 2012, right. um, he campaigned very much on um, uh, a platform of standing up to China. Right. Um, uh, you know, of, of Japan also being more sort of assertive, assertive yeah. and, you know, not taking any rubbish from mm. uh, uh, extreme nationalists in Korea, China, etc., mm. who, who are constantly trying to do Japan down right, and, right. and who have, uh, you know, strange anti-Japanese prejudices uh, <laughs> as he represents them. Right. But, um, I mean, I think that the discourse from Abe and from other Japanese nationalists on China and Korea mm. it threatens in the long term to be very damaging and quite dangerous for Japan mm. um, because and, 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 and this applies also to policies in education mm. particularly on the history curriculum yeah. uh, to policies on the media which have basically helped to uh, keep Japanese people in ignorance of um, mm. many aspects of Chinese and Korean society and right. particularly right. in ignorance of the reasons why many Chinese and Koreans still resent Don't like Japan. Japan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting when I talk to, pe to Japanese people who just, who just can't get it. Right, mm. they just they just uh, they 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 place the blame on on Chinese or Koreans for having even a shred of resentment or distaste. Well, look, towards I, I lived in China for more than a decade. Yeah, I have Chinese friends whose families have you know tell stories about what happened to them. Sure. Uh, during the Japanese invasion and occupation. Right. This is not just. I mean, the perception here in Japan is that these are all lies or it's all very one-sided mm. uh, uh, and basically the Communist Party in China for example is brainwashing people with propaganda mm. well there's an element of truth to that mm. but propaganda doesn't work unless people have reasons to believe it mm. um, there's plenty of examples of governments who've tried to um, uh, use certain propaganda messages to legitimate themselves and failed right uh, Hong Kong today mm. um, <laughs> provides an excellent example of that, you know, because people there don't have a reason to believe sure. the propaganda they're being fed by right. the government. Right. But when it comes to Japan, mm. and for many for many families in, in, in China, because they have these memories, because they've told these stories within their own families mm. about, you know, the terrible things that happened to them during the Japanese invasion, mm. um, that the, the the Communist Party, you know, has a lever it can it can pull right, uh, right. there. And what Japanese nationalism and uh, the denials of that history here—denial of the Nanjing massacre, denial of the Comfort Women right. system, right. denial of you know, biological uh, weapons experimentations in mm. in Northeast China—all mm. of that mm. only helps. The Communist Party to right. uh, to, to demonize Japan mm. today, mm. and uh, if they want to, uh, as a, a another way of legitimating this nationalist narrative. 
It's a good segue to start discussing the Japanese educa education system then. Um, as an American, I'm not sure what the situation is like in, in Great Britain, mm -hmm. but as an American, um, whenever you have someone who, who wants to criticize the education system, they often use Japan. Uh, sometimes you maybe see like Singapore, but often Japan is the Eastern alternative that's put up on a pedestal, mm. right? And there is some truth to that, it seems objectively. It, Japan has a very, very high literacy rate. They have mm. excellent math and STEM scores. Mm. Um, I wanted to get your take on, on this narrative, whether you think it is accurate or whether maybe mm. Western Western... Uh, universities or countries should be looking to Japan as a potential, you know, model um, for for their their education systems and their youth. How do you feel about about the accuracy of that assessment? I do think there are many strengths in the Japanese education system. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of these comparisons that are made in the West are based on, certainly in recent years, are based on the, the OECD's comparative studies right. of <laughs> education systems, these, these PISA tests and, and, right. and the rankings that they generate, uh, which generally do show that Japan and other East Asian countries are sort of ranked very highly. I mean, there are many problems, I think, with those tests. Right. Um, what are they testing? Right. Uh, they test ability in maths, science, um, the national language, uh, and on, uh, in, in, and and they also test um, knowledge in a relatively sort of formulaic way. Yeah. Uh, so, um, in those respects, you know, the, the the sort of scores of a system like Japan are strong. Right. Um, and so if you think those are the most important aspects of education, well... Japan will look like an excellent example then, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, of course, education is about a lot more things sure. than um, uh, maths, science, and literacy, mm. although those things are important. Mm. Um, uh, I would say that... Um, Japanese primary schools, well, and actually, for that matter, preschool education, kindergartens, yeah. are excellent. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, I have two children, yeah. uh, nine and five. Yeah. Uh, they have both, they don't go to international schools. They've, they've been to uh, Japanese kindergarten, Japanese, uh, well, the elder one is in Japanese primary school, yeah. now year four. And I'd say so far our experience of the system is is excellent. Hmm. Uh, well, I should say, say the primary school is not. It's, yes, it's Japanese. It's it's a it's a regular public school. Right, right. It's not an international school. Uh, and I mean, one of the attractive things for me about the public schooling or state schooling system in Japan is its emphasis on equality. Hmm. Uh, now, there's a there's a a kind of dark side to that, which maybe I'll come to in a minute. Mm. But, uh, I mean, coming from Britain, I find this refreshing. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course, governments in Britain, governments in, Ameri in America, talk the talk about equality uh, <laughs> uh, in mm. access to education. Right. 
But the education system in Britain is extremely fragmented. Mm. Uh, this rhetoric uh, of school choice, which is something we, we also have in America, right? Right. Uh, this idea that uh, choice in education is an inalienable right and that um, you know, the more choice you have in the system, the better. Right. This seems to me just nonsense because from the point of view of a parent, mm. I mean, I think you're not a parent yet, but when you are, maybe you'll experience this. Uh, I give, mean, me a, give me a couple of years. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I mean, it will be a bit longer before than that before you um, sort of experience these choices. But ah, I mean, good, um, good the, the, as a parent, do you want to have to choose mm. where your kid goes to school? Mm. Or do you want to be reassured that wherever you are, the quality of education that's sure. available in the public sure. school system is going to be relatively the same? Right. So you don't have to think, oh my God, do I need to move house? to get my kid close to, in the catchment area for right. that school there. Right. Um, and in Japan, broadly speaking, I mean, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say that the, the schooling system is entirely uniform. Mm. There are differences between schools based on you know, sort of where the schools are, mm. based on their, their sort of catchment area. But the system does its best to ensure that inter-school differences are kept to a minimum so for example mm. teachers here mm. are not employed by schools they're employed by the local education authority mm. or the board of education and so teachers instead of spending their whole career in one school get, right. they get moved around regularly uh, very Japanese <laughs> job rotation <laughs> well <laughs> yes yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I mean there are a number of reasons for this but um, one of them is to do with this emphasis on equality and mm, this idea that you, sh you should not right. have a system that allows the best teachers to gravitate to right, right. the school where all the sort of kids from middle class professional families go exactly, and avoid yeah. the school where you know the um, I don't know the Yakuza gangsters are sending their kids right. um, you know the, the, the teachers have to be moved around in a way that ensures that the um, the quality of the teaching force in any school is relatively even as well as the facilities right so a, a, a fair distribution of resources throughout the education system then. yeah yeah uh, and I mean, there's more that can be said in a sort mm. of positive sense about the schooling system, I mm. think, which is that in recent years, especially mm. both in America and in Britain and in some other countries, yeah. um, politicians have pointed to East Asia uh, and its PISA results, for example, mm. uh, and used that as an excuse for introducing greater testing. Uh, greater emphasis on, mm. particularly on testing in literacy, numeracy, uh, uh, scientific knowledge. Uh, and uh, so in, in Britain, this has been especially drastic. Uh, really? so, so that Britain, I think, is now the most, if not one of the most, uh, uh, um, uh, highly intensively tested uh, societies or the school population is, really, is among really? the most wow. intensively te tested in the world. Mm. You know, uh, kids tested at sort of two or three times in primary school mm. with national testing regimes wow. that are then used publicly to rank schools. <laughs> and then this feeds into this, this sort of system of school choice. 
So parents right. are encouraged right. to, and I think similar things happening in America. Mm. You know, these these ranking lists of schools are are publicised, and then so parents can then look at this and say, "All oh, right, okay, I want to get my kid into this right. higher ranked sure. school rather than this lower ranked school." Sure. Here in Japan, um, that kind of testing is not used in 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 that kind of way at primary mm. level. Mm. Uh, and so at primary level here you 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 know kids are not exposed to that kind of competitiveness early on right um, uh, and that kind of intensive uh, or, or almost exclusive focus mm. on academics mm. there's a lot more emphasis on socialization mm. in primary schools uh, you know, teaching kids to behave right. in the right way, teaching them to think about others, to care for others. Sure. So kids in Japanese primary schools have to clean their own classroom. Right. They have to clean the school themselves. Right. They have to serve lunch to each other, you know, in rotation. Right. And, you know, I find a lot of that quite attractive. Mm. And when we look at the world today in the midst of the coronavirus, when I look at Britain, when I look at, you know, uh, as the lockdown was lifted in Britain, hordes of people crowding onto beaches, uh, right. not socially distancing, right. not uh, uh, basically dumping rubbish on the beach uh, at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, I have to say, I can't imagine that happening to the same extent in Japan. Can you? No, no, absolutely. Yeah, unimaginable. And a lot of that is down mm. to... The education system. I mean, if you, if mm. in primary school, kids are um, are expected to organise themselves to ensure that the school is kept clean, uh, then I think that's going to help when they grow up mm. to sort of habituate them to, um, sure, sure, you know, thinking that they have a responsibility right. to to keep their surroundings right clean. No, that's yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Just to provide then the what would potentially be the Western counter argument mm -hmm. is that you know this very communal this communal focus that you have in not just Japan but in in many you know East Asian education systems uh, it strips the individual of his or her creativity. It's suffocating. It's homogenizing, and ultimately, it prevents. Uh, someone who grows up in that environment from reaching his or her creative potential. Uh, potential they would have had had they been raised in a more Western model. What's your take on that? I mean, that is, I, I think, mm. actually the other side of this coin. Or, mm. or uh, I mean, it's a very crude view, but there's, a, there's an element, certainly a, a large element of truth in that. Sure. Um, and but this is why it's so difficult to talk about sort of simply importing aspects of you know one education system mm. into another mm. i mean uh the japanese system and and this becomes i think more true the further up the system you go and it's particularly true in junior high school Mm. Uh, that it becomes more regimented 
it, uh, the the sort of pressure to conform right. becomes increasingly intense. Right. Uh, and this is not just something that is um, uh, uh, created through regular classes. It's it's also uh, or, or in particular. Uh, um, promoted through club activities, which all kids mm. are expected to do here. Right. Uh, and I mean, this is a very interesting aspect of the education system here. Japanese kids, especially in junior high school, mm. to some extent in senior high school, they spend a lot of time in club activities, mm. sports clubs, mm. uh, also other kinds of clubs. Right. Um, right. And these clubs require students to spend a lot of time. Uh, at the weekends and also during the week mm. after school. Um, they're largely organized by students themselves mm. under the supervision of a responsible teacher. And they inculcate this extremely strong ethos of um, group identity right. and uh, seniority, mm. hierarchy based on seniority. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, which, of course, you know, these are strong features of Japanese, Japanese companies, Japanese yeah. organizations, institutions yeah. generally. Yeah. This is something that is explicitly um, inculcated through the, um, uh, the sort of process of socialization that right. students, that kids experience at school. Right. Um, and that is or can be. Mm very suffocating mm. it, it can make it, it I, I think it makes very many people in Japan afraid to be seen as not conforming right. uh, um, disinclined to criticize um, even when they can see that, that uh, a, a particular practice <laughs> is absurd right. or, or um, uh, or unnecessary or damaging right. um, uh, and um, it also means and I, I have to say I find this somewhat frustrating <laughs> it means that uh, or it's associated with the the amount of time that is spent in meetings <laughs> yeah uh, so um, I find it very striking moving from uh, moving from from Britain to 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 Japan from British University to a Japanese University the amount of time that is spent in meetings because yeah. nothing is decided nothing is decided unless everybody <laughs> agrees right right um, uh, now and oftentimes it's orchestrated in advance right that everyone you know you make sure that there aren't going to be any naysayers so that you can you can put on the spectacle of a meeting and, and decide something at that meeting. That's right. Been, so, so it actually right. takes even more time. Right. Because um, <laughs> often people are not prepared to say what they really think in the meeting or, or have the discussion in the meeting. Right, right. The discussion has to happen before the meeting yeah. so that in the meeting there's, um, yeah. you know, consensus exactly. sort of naturally occurs. Sure, sure. Ostensibly. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is an... An absolutely exhausting process, yeah. um, uh, and well, of course, as a uh, as a foreigner in a Japanese institution, it's also a process that's very, very difficult to navigate. Mm. Mm. Um, especially the so-called digging around the roots, right. the nemawashi, nemawashi yeah. that has to happen before these meetings. Sure. Very difficult to do that, um, 
as 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 a foreigner. Well, not least because it has to be done in Japanese generally. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. Mm. Consensus is great. Sure. Um, uh, and um, you know this this desire to, to to sort of carry everybody along mm. with decisions that are made. Um, you know, there's a positive side to that. Mm. But there's a negative side as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely, it's 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 neither neither one or the other. I think, right? Mm -hmm. You you can't you can't have the 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 benefits of one system without having the necessary, you know, uh, downsides to it. No system is perfect, mm -hmm. but no, that's it's very interesting and, and illuminating to be honest to to hear your appraisal of primary school. That's something that he, hearing that actually. Uh, relieved some potential anxiety that I myself have about raising children in Japan and what that experience might be like and what mm. I could potentially be missing out on, right? Not doing it in a in a you know more Western model. Yeah. But mm. well, and and actually, primary school in Japan, uh, yeah, how it actually is in many ways sort of counters the stereotype that many people in the West have about what education in Japan or East Asia is like. Right. Because it's actually less pressured mm. than, uh, at least these days, mm. uh, less pressured than the sort of primary schooling that we typically find in Britain or America. Right, right. Um, well, and I think, and I think you you make a great point in, in in that this idea of choosing your school in a very sort of like almost libertarian look at education, where market forces dictate where the best you know resources and teachers go and then mm. which school puts out the best students then as a, as a result mm. of that right and that then sort of gets perpetuated down the line mm. you know um, but that is is clearly not the best model if we want to have you know if we want the rising t the rising tide to to raise all boats right it's um, it's in effect it's also highly disadvantageous to underprivileged sure groups. sure yeah uh, and I mean, if you take the case of America, this this school choice uh, drive. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the history of that, yeah, that's kind of the point of it. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's it, 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 its origins to a large extent are in the uh, the Southern states during the uh, civil rights um, era in the nineteen sixties yeah. and the sort of the, the the hostility amongst many people there to mm. to the the, the uh, requirement that schools admit blacks as well as whites right. uh, uh, that that um, school access be equalized yeah that whole school choice drive and and this sort of associated ideology of mm. uh, neoliberalism and the market mm. because markets are based on choice of course right right um, it's it's very much associated with that yeah. Well, that's a that's a whole other can of worms that we yeah, don't have yeah. to get into today. But so we're coming up on an hour, uh, so we can we can wrap this up. Uh, do you have a homepage, or is there you know uh, some place that people people could maybe see your work or get in touch with you if they're I do have an interested? I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I I have a homepage on um, academia.edu. Okay, um, I will link that then. So I mean that's a better page than the um, the, the Kyushu University. Uh, website. Okay, so I'll look that up and, and put that in the description. Anything at the end you'd like to, to finish up with, add on, or have you said everything that needs to be said?
We've just been talking about the pressures to conform right. in Japanese organizations. Um, and as a foreigner, this is a difficult issue, but you're kind of expected mm. not to conform to the same extent as mm. some of your Japanese colleagues. Mm. Uh, and, and that can, in some circumstances, actually give you a license to say things that many Japanese colleagues might be less willing to say, but might nonetheless be thinking. Right. Uh, and that can be a valuable um, sort of license to, mm, to mm, sort of, mm, mm. to use, but you have to use it cautiously. I yeah, think. yeah, you don't want to play that card too much. You don't want to play it too much, <laughs> but it is a card that in some circumstances is worth playing. Right. So right. I think, you know, it, it's a very difficult balance to strike, but there is uh, a capacity for foreigners working in Japanese institutions to sort of adopt a policy of what you might call respectful nonconformity. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so don't sort of, um, yeah. yeah, go too far, mm. but, but, you know, try to politely challenge certain, and, and I'm probably not good at, very good at, uh, well, not good enough at the politeness myself, yeah. but um, try to You're polite, challenging. <laughs> try to try to politely challenge right, you know, certain right. practices right. that, that um, are know, antiquated or uh, unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a we can finish up on that then. Um, best of luck to you throughout the rest of 2020 because who knows where this is heading, especially right. here in Japan. And you too. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you very much. It was great meeting you and. Thanks a lot. This is a fascinating hour.